Um, all right, hi, Andrew. Um, so great to see you. Um, I guess uh, I will start with let you have a short introduction of yourself. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and your life? Uh, sure, sure, I'll, I'll try my best. Um, so I'm from, or I live in a place called Arcadia, California right now, and that's where I am now that we're home because of COVID. Uh, I'm in Columbia College, class of 2020, so I'm about to graduate. Um, I actually have my class day for Columbia College tomorrow, and then the university commencement is two days from now. So I don't know, maybe when somebody's seeing this, like, well, I've already graduated. Yeah. But um, I, I study sociology and African-American studies, mm -hmm. um, both, both really proudly. Um, let's see, I, on campus, while I was there, I wrote for a magazine called Blog. Um, so I write a lot of articles. I go to a lot of speaking events, and then I write up articles about that. Um, outside of that, I also do some freelance writing of my own. Um, I'm working on a book with a professor right now. And then after that book, I have another book with another professor lined up, hopefully. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I also just, I, I love to run. Running is a huge thing for me. Uh, I'm always running around campus, going to Riverside Park, um, Central Park. You know, it's one of one of the great joys of my life. And also recently, um, I got into acting. So, wow, I don't know uh, that. <laughs> I don't even know that. How did you how did you get into acting? <laughs> I got into acting. Um, it's actually a funny story. I uh, for my birthday about a month ago. So I'm like a big Avengers fan, like a big Marvel Avengers fan. And it was the one year anniversary around my birthday of that scene i mean spoiler alert i guess from avengers endgame when everybody comes back yeah and i was like hey like this is kind of like what's happened with us they sent all of us home <laughs> everybody disappeared as it were how great would it be if we could bring everybody back together so actually we did a zoom call where i texted like all of my closest friends and i said hey at this time like at 10 p.m zero minutes, 14 seconds, like jump in the call. At 10 p.m., zero minutes, 42 seconds, jump in the call. So it's like exactly in the movie when everybody comes in one by one. So we staggered it. And one of the, one of my friends who, who came through, you know, was somebody that I wrote to on the internet. She's an actress uh, in Black Panther mm -hmm. and Avengers Endgame. Like super great. Um, so she joined the call. Okay. We had we had an actor from Avengers Endgame in the call when we were recreating that scene. Mm -hmm. And then afterwards we were talking and she offered her time uh, to do a Q&A for us, to talk about the industry, talk about Hollywood, talk about being on set with like Chadwick Boseman, Black Panther and, and all of that, giving us really good advice. And then one of my friends, Zach, was like, give Andrew a job. He just like said it. And I, and I guess all my other friends were like, yeah, like, give Andrew a job. And it was kind of, it was kind of funny. Um, but she said, yeah, Andrew, talk to me afterwards. Um, if you want to get into acting, why don't we talk about it? And so we talked afterwards and she sent me um, some acting opportunities. Uh, and then I applied for them, I auditioned for them. And that's how it went. So did you, did you, actually, uh, did you actually go to some of the auditions? Uh, so all the auditions were done over Zoom actually wow and the filming the filming was also done over zoom uh, which was kind of cool so like 
my family members, my sister, my cousin, we also have to learn how to produce a video. Wow. Place. Are they, are they for like Netflix or are they like for Hollywood or are they like for Hulu or? Um, <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about it. Oh, okay. But, but you might've seen it. You might've seen it. There's one, <laughs> I guess the first video I did, um, it's online. It's a, it's an advertisement about the class of 2020 and it has like three, 4 million views right now. So it is kind of cool. It's kind of wow. cool. And I'm actually very curious about that part because the Facebook, the official Facebook app featured you and they choose to feature you on a video about the class of 2020. And how did that even happen? Like, are they trying to find someone that are representative of the Columbia University or the Ivy League? How did they choose you? Because you have, you have like three seconds in that video and you were just smiling to the, to the, to the camera. Can you tell us more about how, how did that happen? And how did, they, how did they contact you? And how did they somehow choose to feature you? I, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about it. I don't know okay, is, is it related to the, to the acting and the audition thing? Yeah, so I, I have that and then some other stuff coming up. Hopefully. Wow. I'm, yeah, I, I don't want to go to jail. I don't okay, know. so you're not, you're not allowed to talk about it? I'm not sure. I'm okay. Not sure. Isn't, isn't it kind of like very unexpected change to your life? It's, it's like life is like a box of chocolate because you are, because I know that you are a writer, right? And you, you write yeah. and then you are, and then you, I think you tell me about being an editor or something after graduation and then you get into acting right now. I think now more than ever is a really good time to try out different things. You know, mm -hmm. um, talk about how this pandemic has upended all of our lives. Mm -hmm. um, but I think one thing worth paying attention to is how, you know, a lot of us college students, um, Columbia students, just from my experience, like in order to, to, to get here, to be in this academic environment, this elite academic environment, you know, you have to do a lot of climbing. You have to do a lot of, right. You know, I, I almost like uh, a lot of us had to ask ourselves like, what was good for my career or, or what was good for the next step in my life? How do I grab onto the next rung of the ladder as it were? And one part of that is great because, you know, being here, like maybe it's cause we're, we're good at testing, but once we're here, you know, hopefully we learn to put that aside a little bit and focus on making friends and having experiences in, in New York city. And I think now that we have this pandemic still going on, a lot of us are asking, well, uh, the places I applied to have hiring freezes or my internship was canceled. How am I going to do that next step? And I think it isn't always about like how to go on to the next step, but sometimes we have to say in this, in this journey of, of getting to where we were, we left some things by the wayside. Um, there's some things in our past that we forgot about. Uh, like that's what acting was to me. It wasn't just like, okay, like, let me do whatever. Like acting was something that I used to want to do. I, I did theater in high school, believe it or not. And I always thought it was something that was really exciting, really fun. And what, um, what, that, that I stopped doing. And now that this is going on, I, I got to revisit that. Okay. And what, what's the name of the play that you participated in in high school? Do you remember? Was that, was that a musical or was that like a play? Well, I can sing pretty darn good karaoke in K-Town, but usually like musicals are a little bit above my pay grade. Okay. Um, I did actually a lot of theater that was related to social justice issues. Uh, okay. I'm, I'm 22 now. I was coming of age in high school. 
mm-hmm. during kind of like the height of the, the Black Lives Matter movement, actually. Mm-hmm. A lot of the plays that I participated in or, or helped produce were, were related to those themes, like, you know, uh, police brutality, uh, race, black feminism, things like that. Okay. Uh, so, so maybe not your typical Shakespeare, but okay. yeah, I, I have a reverence for both. Okay, because I, I also did some uh, acting in high school. So I guess we're kind of similar. Yeah, you should get back into it. It brings brings me brings me back some memories from high school about acting. And um, so I guess my next question is: See, originally I prepare a lot of questions, and but some of the things that you mentioned it keeps makes me ask new questions. So we're kind of like keep that diverted. So uh, my my next question is: If you look, if you can look back into your uh, four years of stay, staying, uh, of being a Columbia student. Um, what are, if, if you have to use like one single word or one single phrase to summarize or encapsulate your entire experience uh, at Columbia, what would it be? Like a single word or, or a phrase? Oh, okay. I can do both. Um, I think a word, I mean, usually we, we use adjectives when we say t- describe something but i would say like if i could use a noun like a crystal mm-hmm. i think my experience at columbia has been very much like a crystal and and what i mean when i say crystal is like you know crystal has many facets it has has a lot of sides um depending on which angle you look at it it looks different uh depending on whether the light is shining on it it, it looks different uh, i i think that's kind of what my columbia experience was like um i did a lot of different things uh writing um, running, hanging out with friends, <laughs> like going right. out with them, mm-hmm. um, showing up to random events, sneaking into events, um, never feeling beholden to one particular way of life, except the way of life that says, you know, spread yourself wide, um, mm-hmm. but not thin. Yeah, I, I, I guess I'd say that's how it was. I think I definitely wasted a lot of days procrastinating, like mm-hmm. as we all do. But for the most part, I felt like most days I could wake up not really knowing what was going to happen that day mm-hmm. and, and gaining a new perspective by the end of it. What about a single phrase? Would that be also related to Crystal? Well, the phrase I said was um, to, to, to spread myself wide, uh, but never thin. I think that encapsulates that as well. You know, I did a lot of things. I didn't just do one thing. But just because you tried a lot of things at Columbia doesn't doesn't mean like you know, you're, you're, you're not doing enough. Um, it's, it's like that saying, like, the, the jack of all trades, master of none. I think that's a terribly underrated idea because it's almost like a joke. Like, yeah, you can do everything, but you're a master of nothing. Well, I'm 22. Don't need to be a master in anything right now. So maybe when I go back for my PhD. Um, Are you planning to go back for a PhD? And uh, in a couple of years. I'm going to, I'm going to work for a couple of years in the writing world, publishing world. Okay. And what subject would it be? What subject would you be studying? You know, it would probably be sociology because I have some ongoing projects in the field that I would like to complete, um, that wow. I would do to make better. But at the same time, like African-American studies matters to me a lot. So who knows? I, I might, I might surprise you guys and, and end up doing a, Okay. FM studies PhD program. Uh, the the only problem is is that not a lot of departments 
uh, around the country have PhD programs in African American studies or, or Black studies. Um, but but Columbia, you know, Columbia has a robust PhD program, and I think I would want to stay at Columbia for my PhD. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, what are some of your most uh, memorable moments at Columbia? Can you name a few? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think Things that you just wouldn't forget after a very long time. I think a lot of them are just like super, super spontaneous things. Mm-hmm. Um, just like last minute decisions. Um, for example, like one time I was at a Columbia networking event and I met this guy and he was like, hey, like I have two tickets for Hamilton tomorrow for me and my daughter. Oh. <laughs> I don't like, you know, but like if you want to go, if you'll take her. You can have my ticket. So I was like, okay. (laughs) I got free Hamilton tickets, like towards the front, like right in the middle. Got to meet the cast afterwards too. Wow. All on a a Wednesday night. And like, I I don't know. Like, I wouldn't even say that's like the most memorable. That's like almost like a typical week uh, at Columbia. Um, There've been a lot of great things. Uh, Love going to New York Fashion Week loved going to like a lot of like fun parties downtown um one time i i guess i finessed my way into a party at the museum of modern art which was a lot of fun you know standing there with a with a cocktail glass pretending to to understand all the art it's kind of just like a fun fun little thing um i would say another memory and like i could go on and on and on and on um one really great thing is I was a transfer student to Columbia mm-hmm. and one of the people who tra- helped me transfer is a writer at the Atlantic. Um, he's okay. a really good writer. He writes on uh, politics, uh, race, culture. Mm-hmm. And most recently he, he covered the uh, coronavirus pandemic wow. for the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. And back in my freshman year, I was at another school mm-hmm. and I wasn't loving that school so much. And I wrote to him for advice because I'm like, hey, like, I like your writing. Um, you're a cool guy. Like, so it was, that, was that like in cold emails? Like you don't know him before? You just yeah, cold emails. Cold emails. That's, that's my advice. Like, wow. Cold email like help because it, it works. I think authenticity is key and persistence is key. And mm-hmm. when you share your experiences mm-hmm. and be honest and forthright about why you're emailing them mm-hmm. um, and you know, I think, it, I think it, it does lead you to some great things. But anyways, this guy gave me transfer advice, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, he was saying like, yeah, you should go to Columbia. Um, and then he told me a lot of other things that, that helped me as a writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I ended up transferring to Columbia. Um, so spoiler alert. I don't, oh, I don't even know that. I thought you were here as a freshman. <laughs> no, no. Here I, yeah, I transferred in for my sophomore year. But um, oh. he was speaking at an event at Low Library. Mm-hmm. on uh, voter suppression. Uh, okay. So, so he was one of the panelists. Okay. And then obviously I went because this person helped me a ton. I have a great deal of respect for him. And I remember when I was in low library, there were just like a ton of professors crowding him. It was hard to like, you know, get his attention. I, I wondered if he knew who I was mm-hmm. because when we cold emailed, all I had was like my little profile picture. Mm-hmm. I was like, was that was that a profile picture of your face? Yeah, it was a profile picture of my because face. If, 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 if like, it's not your face, it might not even be aware of you. If, right. if it was like a right. tree or something. Well, anyways, I was like, hey, like Mr. Newkirk, like Mr. Newkirk, like you remember me? Like I can 
get to the front, obviously. Mm-hmm. And kind of like like Moses parting the Red Sea, he was like, wait, like, let me talk to this guy over there. And then so the crowd parts, and then he talks to me, and I'm like, I'm like about to cry because I'm like, wow, this guy remembered me then. And I'm like, hey, Mr. Newkirk, like, this is Andrew. I don't know if you remember me. And then he like cut me off and shook my hand. And he said, of course I remember you. He said, wait here one moment. And he left the event, right? He, he left the event. He left Low Library. And we were like, what's going on? Why did, why did the speaker just leave? Mm-hmm. Uh, and a few minutes later, he, he comes back. He has a magazine in his hand. And he says to me, like, Andrew, like, this is, this is the new issue of the Atlantic magazine that I was the editor-in-chief of, right? I, I oversaw this. It's a series of essays uh, reflecting on Dr. Martin Luther King's assassination 50 years after the fact. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's the, like, only copy in existence. Um, it, it's not out yet. Don't sell it to the New York Times. Take a look at it and, and tell me what you think. And so that was just like an incredible moment, right? Because it started out with a cold call mm-hmm. thousands of miles away in California. Like, hey, like maybe I'll transfer to Columbia and then actually going and then seeing him there and then receiving this very special gift from him. Um, and, and he said it was because he thought I had potential. Okay. And he said it was because he hoped that younger journalists and aspiring writers uh, could have the guidance that maybe he didn't have when he was starting out. Um, that was pretty special. Um, wow. I know all the essays in it now, and I think that's been a, it, it was a, it was both a special moment, the same way like you open up the best Christmas gift ever. And it was something I, I reflected on in later years, thinking about why it's important to reach out to people and why it's important to make yourself vulnerable and tell people about, about your problems and, and, genuinely ask them for advice and help because as much as we talk about people looking out for for numero uno like i i think others do do really care um but we have to meet them halfway okay so uh is he a professor at columbia or is he affiliated with columbia and at uh, the same time he is also working at the atlantic or is he just visiting and come here for a panel yeah he was coming for a panel uh but i think columbia invites him very often because he is a very sharp mind um so yeah he's not a professor he's he he writes for the atlantic wow and he and he helped you transfer to columbia he helped me in the sense that he really put columbia on my radar over every other school and he said this is like a place you you should really really consider Um, and then just making me confident as a writer as well Uh, that goes a long way um there are a lot of ways that Columbia will, will beat you down and make you feel like you don't have, mm-hmm. you, know, you don't have what it takes. So it's good to have people uh, that, that remind you that you're in the right place and that you can do it. And I know that you uh, went to Andover before you come to Columbia or uh, transferred to Columbia more precisely. And if you can compare your life at Andover and Columbia, uh, can you tell us what are some of the differences and similarities of the two institutions? Sure, sure. I'd say the ways in which they're the same is that they're both like kind of in a sort of collegiate environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, classes, academics are super, super important. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Andover is almost like a place where you're socialized to do well at Columbia. 
you know, I'm, I'm first generation, I'm a first gen college student. Um, but, you know, despite the challenges that that brings, Andover prepared me a lot for it because when you're at boarding school, they, 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 they teach you like how to go to office hours with professors, um, how to say, how can I improve? Um, things like that, right? Like it's a form of elite socialization. And if you or anybody else is interested, another a really, really great book about this is a book called Privilege by Seamus Khan. Uh, Seamus, Professor Khan, excuse me, is, uh, was also my sociology professor a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. And he's the uh, department chair for sociology. But he writes about like elite boarding prep schools mm-hmm. and, and kind of how they socialize kids. I don't say socialize like like brainwash. I mean socialize like through through practices, uh, rituals, traditions, ways of life um, to to prepare you for college life and then perhaps a life like a kind of elite cultural life um, afterwards. You know, um, I think it prepared me in that way for better or worse and love love my high school but i think that's also just something that happens when you go to these schools um, you kind of prepare for college that's why it's called a prep school i think one of the biggest differences is that in high school and then over like your time is very regimented so you wake up at seven every day you go to breakfast at seven forty. you eat for 20 minutes you go to class at eight you're in class until noon and then at noon you have lunch and then right at one o'clock you have class up until 3 p.m then after 3 p.m you go to your sport like everybody has to do a sport so you do your sport until 5 30 and then afterwards everybody goes to eat dinner together um, and then afterwards you go to the library or you go back to your dorm and then you just do your homework and then you you rinse and repeat um you know college life is not like that you have to take responsibility a lot of times for your own time um you know and and it's hard. It's hard. Like, you, have cl- you have classes on Saturday as well, right? Some schools do. I did not. Um, not Andover. No, no, thankfully. There, yeah, there, there are some other schools that that make you take. Yeah. <laughs> and do you? And which one of the two institutions is more stressful for you? Because some some people think like high school is actually more stressful because you have to keep thinking about applying to colleges. Uh huh. Is that is that the case for you? In terms of stress, like, I think, I mean, a, a lot of things can, can cause stress, right? Like, like the, the pandemic is causing stress. Right. Um, in some ways, I'm more stressed in college or at home college than I was at Andover because they're like, gosh, like, this is a global crisis. People are dying. Like, right. this is unprecedented. That's stress. But I think in terms of, like, work stress... I definitely had more in high school just because it was so regimented. Mm-hmm. So you felt like you couldn't fall behind any day or else you could never catch up because you could only catch up one day at a time. Uh, but you have something else the next day. In college, things are more spread out. Um, and they're more like, you know, they, they, they take a lot of brain power. I think they take more brain power than high school. I mean, you, you would hope, you would hope that it takes more, but definitely have a lot more freedom um, in college. You can work things in to de-stress. You can go on a run in the middle of the day between classes. You can go out with friends and wake up the next day and then start your essay again. So in terms of work, I think Columbia has been, been less stressful. I, I get pretty good sleep. I sleep late, but I get like eight hours a day, so you can't complain. Okay. 
Um, and I guess my next question is, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your understanding of uh, liberal arts education? Because Columbia has a core curriculum, and I guess it is one of the earliest university in the United States to have what people refer to as a liberal arts curriculum, the, the core curriculum. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about your experience of taking these classes? And of course, I guess you take some of the classes at Andover as well. Can you tell us about your understanding of what is a liberal arts education? Sure. I mean, is it bad for me to say, like, I think a liberal arts education is in, in some ways like a, a prototype uh, of education, mm -hmm. right? Seeing education as, as not a means to an end, but as an end in and of itself, as something that makes one critical and, and reflective of their own life, um, maybe makes one kinder, uh, say ethics, or, or maybe makes somebody like have more convictions uh, in their beliefs, or to also say, hey, I, I, I may be wrong. Um, I think one of the great things about a liberal arts education is that you can really apply it to anything. Like I would say during a coronavirus pandemic, when we need scientists and doctors um, to an extreme extent. Mm -hmm. We also need philosophers. Uh, we need writers. We need sociologists. We need, we need all of that. I mean, liberal arts education is more important now than ever. Um, and I, I think personally, um, I think if people are able to, uh, they should definitely think more about spending more time with the liberal arts. I mean, for example, uh, I'll give an example from sociology, because I guess you could call it a liberal art. Mm -hmm. When we have the coronavirus pandemic, one of the questions we're trying to solve is, how do we, you know, for, for, for preventable deaths, right? Mm -hmm. How do we make sure that they're prevented, right? Unfortunately, like with the coronavirus pandemic, like, you know, there, there's no way to get down to zero, but there are preventable deaths and how do we make sure that, that doesn't happen? Um, so on one hand, maybe you could try to come up with a vaccine or maybe you could send a stimulus check to, to Americans. But I think one thing that the liberal arts would do is to say like, you know, what are some other things we can look at? Like, uh, there's a sociologist, Eric Kleinenberg, he teaches at NYU. And one thing he's been advocating for during this time is not just social distancing, which we all talk about, but something that he calls social solidarity. So social solidarity is really an idea that the liberal arts has, you know, is really invested in. It's like, you know, we're part of a society, right? We're, we're not like in this world alone fending for ourselves. Are there situations when we can maybe give up some of our own luxuries and our own privileges so that others can, can enjoy a lot more. Mm -hmm. So for example, like I'm healthy, but I'm not going out. And by doing that, I'm making a small sacrifice um, in a rational framework. Like I could go out and I, I would likely be fine. But by doing this, like I make it a lot easier for everybody else. Um, or, or when we talk about like communities, right? We're not just saying like, does this place have a vaccine? Sociology would say, okay, you know, are there places in this community for people to get to know one another so that we can see ourselves as true neighbors? 
Um, for example, uh, in 1995, Kleinenberg talks about this. There was a heat wave in Chicago where a lot of people died. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's actually a big disparity in mortality rates between African-Americans um, and, and whites. And one of Kleinenberg's findings was basically like, you know, some people were saying like, maybe it's like a cultural or like ethnic reason why, um, you know, there, there are fewer whites, whites who died. And, and Kleinenberg was kind of saying like, you know, we have to look at how social space is divided. We have to conduct a social autopsy of this disaster. And so one of the findings, for example, is that, you know, in the communities where more people died, um, you know, like the, the, the stores were closed, right? Mm-hmm. Like when, when the stores closed, you know, stores are places for, for people to meet, for people to know one another. So there's a heat wave. Um, and I've met you at the store. Let's pretend like my, my house doesn't have AC, which becomes very dangerous in a heat wave. But you have air conditioning. But we met at the store. You'd be like, hey, Andrew, like everything okay? Like, do you need to come over? And because I have AC. You just saved my life, right? Um, that's just one example I thought of. But basically, I'm trying to say that, like, you can use the liberal arts for everything. Um, and it's not just a way of finding happiness, you know, the, the, the true meaning of life, as we usually talk about it. As um, taking the liberal arts, you, you realize, like, there, there are way too many answers to, to maybe settle on one. Um, but I, I think it, it's more important now than ever. Um, and I'm, I'm really happy that. I got to go to a school um, where I got to take a lot of liberal arts and that I had good professors who, who made them come alive for me. Okay. And um, can you tell us a little bit about the book that you are writing right now? I know you probably can't talk about in great, a lot of details, but can you tell us a little bit about how you decide to write a book and cooperate with your professors? And I, you just mentioned that there's another book that you're working on. So can you tell us a little bit about it, even though maybe you can't reveal a lot of details? Yeah, yeah. So, how, I, did, like, how, did, how did that idea of writing a book come up? And yeah, so it was actually in a class that I was in. It was a seminar with like seven or eight people. Mm-hmm. And during one of the slides, we were talking about. Um, I, I guess I'll just say it. we were discussing um, like white supremacist politics, right? And he was he was showing our class like his ideas about it, and he said, "Hey." I might turn this into a book one day. And I was like, okay, cool, cool. And then, and then we started, he started talking more about his ideas. And I thought a lot of them were absolutely fascinating, um, captivating. Uh, he's, he's a very great mind, uh, my professor. But there was one thing that I, that I disagreed with him about. Um, and I disagreed with him because when I was a sophomore, um, I actually did an internship at Dagens Nyheter in Sweden which is kind of like their New York Times, as it were. They'll, they'll, they'll love me for saying that. No, I'm kidding. Is that, uh, is that like yeah. kind of like the New York Times of Sweden? Sure, you could say that. Okay. Uh, I think they would prefer the New York Times be called the uh, Doggins Nieter. Uh, okay. Um, but uh, it was a really, really great newspaper that I got to work at mm-hmm. and actually spent a lot of time studying white supremacist movements mm-hmm. in Sweden when I was there. Um, you know, Sweden is a rather, in some in some ways, rather ethnically homogenous, racially homogenous country. Mm-hmm. Um, so to to look at 
their their white supremacist fringe groups gave me a lot of insight into ours here in the United States. So I, I had this disagreement with him, and I, I went to his office hours. I was like, "Hey, like, let's let's debate this." We had a really we had a really robust argument. It was great. And that was that. You know, I finished the class, did fine in it. Um, he kept doing his thing, and then almost a year later. I kind of just wanted to catch up with him. So I wrote to him and I said, hey, like, can we meet and talk? So we met at a cafe and caught up on things, asked me how classes were, gave me advice on course selections, told me about some stuff he was working on. And then I wanted to ask him, I said, hey, did you ever write that book? And he said, um, you know, I got really busy, so I never wrote that book. And I said, you know, let me help you with it. Um, you have some great ideas. Uh, maybe we could collaborate in some way. So that's how it happened. And then for the next year and a half, two years, we would meet, talk, throw ideas around, um, discuss discuss things that he wanted to put in the book. Um, I learned a lot because I got to, you know, work personally uh, as an interlocutor uh, with my professor rather than just being his student. Um, it was really cool. It's a it's a good book. It's it's coming out soon. Okay. I, I don't think the publishers have announced it, which is why like. Okay. Don't think I'm allowed to talk about it. But okay. I, I think. Is it coming out uh, in like three months or one month or like in a very near future? I'm not exactly sure. Uh, we'll have to see. I I just <laughs> they, okay. they, they they have like publishers. They'll have like a timeline and they'll okay. slot in timelines for books. So you never really know until they talk about it. But I think. The main point is not to promote this book, um, and like I'm, I'm not like co-authoring it with him. I'm, you know, I'm somebody who who helped with the book, uh, worked as a research assistant, and as an editor. Okay, is that a book about about race or about white supremacy? Yeah, it's about race and politics. Um, okay, and and it'll be very timely. It'll talk about you know, not only the Trump administration but other administrations before that, uh, his personal experiences, and. Also, is going to talk about the coronavirus pandemic, so it's it's going to be a pretty up to date book. I, I think the main thing that I want to get across is, mm -hmm. you know, again, cold email, cold call. Like this isn't because because like this is my dad's friend or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. When you're at Columbia, one of the privileges we have, I think, is to have access. And while you have access, you know, don't don't take it for granted uh, if you can. Okay, and. Uh, I'm actually very curious about because there are so many uh, subjects that you can choose from, and uh, why did you choose African American studies and sociology instead of you know political science or international relations or literature, English English literature or history or any other subjects? So how did this, these two particular subjects like attract attentions, and you choose to study them? I would say the first thing is, you know. Columbia is a kind of unique school in that I think if you're in CC, Columbia College, like everybody kind of majors in the core, mm -hmm. right? Because we have to take a whole bunch of classes. Right. So it's like, yeah, I knew with whatever major that I chose, I would still be taking a lot of the same classes as everybody else. Mm -hmm. so it didn't feel like as much of a specialization as it might have felt at other schools. Mm -hmm. um, but why those specifically? Um, sociology kind of started my freshman year of college. I didn't know what it was. Like 
one of the problems is that we don't study sociology in most high schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, it's not a thing, I guess. But I had a cool sociology professor back at my old school. He was cool. Um, he was fun. He lived an interesting life. Uh, he wanted to just be like, hey, class, like, let's go to Vietnam for spring break because it's related to our class. And then did you actually, the, the entire class actually go? No, because some of us were busy. But like, <laughs> that's something he does. He's like, hey, class, like, do you want to go to Vietnam? Uh, I thought that was cool. Uh, being able to, to, you know, think critically about social relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's also a lot of philosophy involved uh, in the discipline. So it's a really, really great one that, that makes you think about the world around you and, and not take it for granted. As far as FM studies goes, mm-hmm. I actually had, actually started in high school, which I think is really quite rare. Mm-hmm. I went to Andover, my boarding school from Texas. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a culture shock to me, if you can say that. But I had two teachers there who I guess took an interest in me and really raised me up and really saw through all four years of my high school. Um, Mm -hmm. They were also both black women, uh, both black women in African-American studies, Mm -hmm. brilliant, brilliant minds, Um, but they also had good hearts and Mm -hmm. they had me reading like, maybe this doesn't make sense, like some of the, some of the theorists in African-American studies, like Sadia Hartman, Mm -hmm. right, Spillers, like these are very very hard theorists to read it's like absolutely difficult like as hard as it is like when i'm reading like hegel or kant uh, in other classes like um and for the record uh professor hartman professor cd hartman also teaches at columbia okay Um, so like some of some of the great theorists in the field are also at columbia Mm -hmm. but i was 14 and they were having me read this stuff Okay. And like, it was just a jumbled mess, but they said like, stay persistent. Um, Cause I think this is what you're into. And you know, it's, it's good theory. It's, it's powerful. It changes paradigms. So I went into college, like the, the decision was easy. Um, I think even though I'm probably going to do a PhD in sociology, mm-hmm. if I could have only chosen one major at Columbia, it would have been African-American studies. Um, it's a very good field. It's, it's underrated. Um, I think there are only three people graduating this year who wrote theses. Um, so it's a small department, mm-hmm. but actually Columbia's department has a very rich and storied history. And, okay. Yeah, it's, and it's, I, um, my, uh, my English uh, teacher in high school also studied some uh, African-American history while he was in college. So we actually, re- we actually, uh, I, I actually also read, uh, read some um, books, articles written by some African Americans while I was in high school, and uh, uh, I think I I read um, W. E. B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington, mm-hmm. and uh, like black folk. Yeah, and I remember, and they had that you know Atlanta compromised in the in the twenty in the twentieth in the nineteenth uh, century, and I think one of the one of the divide was that one of them believed that you should always fight for what you believe in, and the other was like you need to take into account of the reality. Uh, and one of them want, uh, some, want African-Americans to submit to the white rule at the South at that time in exchange for education of African-Americans and due process of law. Whereas the other was like, you need to fight for true equality of all times. And do you, uh, what are some of your view on this divide? What are some of your view on this issue? Like, it, it, for me, it's kind of like, it's kind of like, it, it reminds me the debate reminds me of Bernie Sanders. It's like, do you have to fight for what you believe in, even though you might not be able to achieve it? 
with uh, uh, versus you know you need to have some compromise um, it so that you have a higher chance of achieving a, a, a percentage of your goals. Mm -hmm. so. Okay, so you know I'm I'm familiar with the passage. Um, actually, I wrote my thesis on W. B. Du Bois, mm -hmm. and I had a brilliant professor, uh, Professor Robert Gooding Williams, who is a Du Bois scholar mm -hmm. as well as a Nietzsche scholar. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was lucky enough to gain a lot of insight on that. Mm -hmm. I think. For me, the best way to answer this question is not to say Washington was wrong or Washington was right or vice versa about Du Bois. Mm -hmm. I think that is a passage in the Souls of Black Folk that you know is is more well known. And in some ways, it's a false dichotomy. I wouldn't put them on opposite ends of the spectrum together. Mm -hmm. I think I would want to answer this question by pointing to something else that Du Bois once said. Mm -hmm. Um, Souls of Black Folk was what? It was like 1903. I, I could be wrong. 1903, 1905. Or it could be 1898. Um, one of them might be getting them mixed up. But uh, if you look at his later work, for example, one of them is uh, Dusk of Dawn. I believe that was 1940. Mm -hmm. Dusk of Dawn, an autobiography of uh, race concept. Mm -hmm. There's this idea that he talks about, which is like, you, we talk about like revolution or like, you know, building a better society, creating a better society. Um, one, of, one of the things that he talks about is like, the world that we live in, right? Mm -hmm. In some ways you can think of evil forces as, as guiding them, right? Racism, for example, is, is an evil, we can all agree, I think. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's not rational, it's, it's evil. Um, but I think but I what think the voice talks about it. I'm hearing myself, I'm hearing myself. No, but it's okay. Um, um, <laughs> I don't know. There's like some, there's like some is there a way we can fix that? Um, there isn't any problem with me hearing what you are saying. So are you hearing some random noise? I'm hearing myself. Oh, you can hear yourself? I'm hearing myself. Okay, so it's something that your voice is just keep repeating or just echoing? My, my voice just keeps voice keep... Okay, but it's, it's fine on my end. I mean, I can, hear, I can hear you perfectly. So I don't have any problems on my end. I'm not sure. I've, I have no idea what is happening on your end. Okay, I think... Um, is it like a single sentence I just keep repeating? No, it's not a single sentence. Sorry, I don't have headphones. Do you have headphones by any chance? I think I'm, I think I'm hearing myself on your screen and it's coming back to me. Okay. Because I am not. It's okay now. It's okay, okay. now. It got fixed. Okay. Uh, I'm going to I'm gonna go back to Du Bois real quick. So in Dusk of Dawn, he talks about how, you know, we're saying racism is an evil. Yes. Okay. We agree. Uh, but another thing that he also said was, Whatever we have in this world is also a lot of times the result of chance, right? Mm -hmm. um, certain things happen that we couldn't have predicted. There was uh, one person who was born in, in this place and, and he made that, that terrible decision to, to, to do something, right? Um, right? Like the, the universe isn't able to account for these contingencies. So thus, we live in a world that is built both by intentional evil, right? Or, or intentional actions, 
the social world, but we also have chance, luck, things that we can't predict. So you have both of these things. And Du Bois says, okay, when we look at both of these things, like what's the solution? And he says, well, first what we have to recognize is that there's no way to just like fix it immediately. Um, I think the idea would be that if the world was completely determined and nothing was the result of chance, then there's like something that you can fix. You mm-hmm. cut out all of the contingencies and you say, this is the world that I want to live in. This is the world that, that better serves its people. Um, but he says, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of chance and you don't always know what's going to happen. And so he says, there's no such thing as a brilliant stratagem to, to fix everything. So what I mean is like, it's never just going to be like one policy and it's never going to be like just one presidency um, that's going to immediately solve all of the problems in the world uh, once and for all, right? He says this, the way we have to see our work is that it's long-term, that it's dogged, that there will be setbacks, that we may lose, right? There's no guarantee of victory. As he says, um, the chances of, of success were, were uh, fantastic, um, but so were the chances of failure, something like that, right? It's like, so, so you never know. Um, I think what Du Bois would want from us is just to, you know, give the best that we could in the present and be honest about it and, and not pretend like there's some solution that we can do just like that to, to write centuries, centuries of wrong. Um, yeah, that, that's how I'd see it. And you can, you can apply that, I guess, to the presidency, presidential race, however you'd like. And, and I have another question that's also um, related to African-American studies. And it's sure. actually a question that I am personally like intrigued uh, a lot. And that is the relationship between the feminist movement and the civil rights movement. Because if you look at the origins of the feminist movement and the, uh, and the civil rights movement, they actually share the same origin. And that is from the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal. And uh, so if, if everyone is equal, and obviously African-Americans and every other race are equal, and uh, men and women are also equal. So I guess in that sense, both the feminist movement and the civil rights movement have the same are pursuing the same goal, and that is all men are created equal. But if we look at the history of the feminist movement and the civil rights movement, these two different movements never merge together and form a singular force. So if you can, if you can imagine their forces can, can be combined together, then I guess the voting rights of both women and African-Americans can, maybe the, both, the two groups can obtain their voting rights uh, a lot earlier, um, maybe a couple of decades earlier. So uh, um, for, from your perspective and from your analysis and from your understanding of, the, of African-Americans and the civil rights movement, what are some of the reasons that the feminist movement and the civil rights movement uh, are two distinct and separate movements and never merged or combined together, even though when we look back, they share the same origin or they're pursuing the same goal, and that is all men are created equal. Okay, so... I mean, I, I won't profess to be like an expert in this. I can just kind of give my thoughts. I mean, this isn't just from being an African-American studies major. This is mm-hmm. really just like what I know and maybe what I think uh, mm-hmm. right now may change. 
Mm-hmm. So when you talk about origins, like with the Declaration of Independence, like something people talk about in philosophy is this idea of like imminent critique. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Declaration of Independence is a really good model to use f- to make the imminent critique because it's like saying like, okay, if you believe in equality, Declaration of Independence, like mm-hmm. why have you done this? Why have you done like this injustice? Um, mm-hmm. And you know, it, it's a model that is effective because I think their opponents at the time, mm-hmm. you know, would believe in the Declaration of Independence, right? So it's like saying like, okay, like this is something you believe in, yes, yes. And in this, it says all men are created equal, as it were. And they say, uh, okay, yeah. Um, and they said, okay, well, this is our understanding of it, right? This is our interpretation of it. Therefore, if you believe in equality as you profess to do, then you should also believe in this. That's how I understand imminent critique. And that's why I think the Declaration of Independence is so often used as a model for, for various movements, um, for, for various egalitarian movements. Um, as for why, like, kind of as you say, like the civil rights movement and the feminist movement didn't just like combine, I guess, to maybe be more effective, I think. Because on a fundamental level, like, not all oppression can simply be articulated as oppression, right? Mm-hmm. There are particular mechanisms working. Um, you can imagine how, you know, especially in the kind of like a 19th century, 19th century, uh, especially in the South, right? There, was, there, were, there were myths about black men and, and white women, mm-hmm. right? Where in fact, like white women were often utilized as means to justify the lynchings of black men, yeah. and you know, this carried over half a century ago with with mm-hmm. Emmett Till, and it carries over like in some ways like now with 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 the uh, extrajudicial extra like with with the with the murder with the murder of um of, of the black jogger. So, you know, these, these things continue and it's never just one singular oppressor versus the, versus the, the oppressed, right? Uh, groups are pitted against one another. Um, groups experience oppression in their own way. And I think, you know, with a movement, you're not just talking about principles. You're also talking about goals and, and strategy and, you know, ways of doing things and there, there's a lot that has to align for that, for that kind of thing to happen. Um, is it necessarily the best way? Uh, who knows? Because if you have one coalition um, of those who are oppressed, your strategy might change. The things you fight for might exclude those on the margins of that movement. Um, so there's always a lot to consider. I also would say like, you know, nowadays we talk a lot about like intersectionality. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you can read uh, Patricia Hill Collins uh, on on Black feminism. You can read uh, Kimberly Crenshaw on intersectionality. And for the record, Professor Crenshaw also teaches at Columbia in the law school. So, okay. um, but I, I, I think I think the main idea is like we're still trying to theorize and build on ideas of how movements can be successful as well as inclusive. Um, so yeah, hope that hope that answers. Yeah, and um, to some extent, do, uh, do you view the 
Black Lives Matter movement and the Me Too movement as kind of like uh, the descendants or the children of the civil rights movement and the feminist movement? And do you believe that it is possible right now to build a coalition between the Me Too movement and the Black Lives Matter movement? You know, because the, if you try to, in, in, to some extent, you want, if, if we want to trace the origin of these two movements, they can, the origin is, can be traced back to the, to the phrase that all men are created equal. And if everyone is equal, then obviously men and women are equal and African-Americans and white people are equal. So, so to, from, from that perspective, you know, the Me Too movement and the Black Lives, Black Lives Matter movement are pursuing the same goal. So do you, do you see any possibility that, you know, people from these two different movements can kind of like build a coalition and just work together towards the same goal? Mm. Or, think, or do you see that will be very difficult to do? You know, I think there's always value in trying to build, you know, a, a large scale movement that is able to address like as many things as it can. I think, you know, I, I think there are like different ways of looking at it. I think from what I know, from what I know, the Me Too movement became more mainstream uh, mm -hmm. because of, I, I think it was led by the accusations against Weinstein. I think there, there might've been others. I'm not exactly like, familiar with the history but i've also heard that you know it had been around in in the past um because of of, of black women right um mm -hmm. you know that that it was black women who who started it or also like black lives matter um a lot of the founders i guess of the movement were also black women so it's not like just that they were conceived of separately and then you know, that's just how it is. It's more like maybe they were conceived of, you know, by black women and then it had offshoots or was appropriated or, or was different or, or changed in some way. Um, I guess that's the thing with movements. I don't study movements. I don't know a lot about them, but it's hard to really say like which way something goes. I think, I think with both of them, I think they're trying to protest or call attention or make change regarding different issues, right? Mm -hmm. um, me too, it's, you know, sexual abuse, uh, harassment, assault, things like that, um, especially in places where they might be less visible. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that that's a big part about it and uh, holding people in power accountable. Uh, on the other hand, I think one big part of Black Lives Matter is protesting the um, extrajudicial killings of, of black people um you know protesting injustice not only then right but also in the courts things like that um i think because of that they're just different different aims they don't always have to be competing but but they're different and i think we should also respect that you know there there are people organizers like behind each one who are trying to make it better make it more effective and i think it's not always about, you know, just reaching egalitarian, like, like reaching an egalitarian society, right? Like you mentioned the Declaration of Independence a lot, and that, that's important, right? But I think we also know that egalitarianism is a very, like, there's a very contingent kind of thing. Like, look at, you look at the law, look at like Shelby County versus Holder from 2013. Mm -hmm. 
a lot about voter suppression where, where, where states with histories of racism used to have to go through the federal government to pass new voter ID, like voter ID voting laws. Mm -hmm. And then the Supreme Court struck that down. And what was the result? Okay, the result was that states started passing new voting laws. And then what was the result of that? The result was that a lot more black folks couldn't vote. A lot more students couldn't vote. In some places, you couldn't vote with a student ID, but you could vote with a like assault weapons um, license. So you can have equality principles in the law, but it doesn't always like work out that way, right? So I think I also, I also respect that movements are, are trying their best to, to secure um, gains that, that, are, that are most relevant. Okay. And um, I know that you have to go at 5.15, right? Yeah, like 5.15. So I guess we have like five more minutes. So I guess my last question would, would be related to um, your understanding of, because I know that your, your parents are from China and you are like the first generation that, and you were born here. Um, and there are a lot of different myths about the, how Chinese parents are raising the kids. You, you have the tiger mom and you have the book. So from your, from your personal experience, can you tell us about your understanding um, of the Chinese culture and the American culture and how you know, growing up in a, as a first generation immigrants impact you and tell us about your understanding of, you know, what, what's, your, what's your opinion about uh, the tiger mom or how Asian parents are raising their kids or about the differences and similarities between the Chinese and American cultures in general. Okay, okay. So I think, you know, I'm speaking from my perspective as an Asian American, not as mm -hmm. someone who grew up and lived in China or another Asian mm -hmm. country. Mm -hmm. um, one thing I'll say is like, I do think, you know, in terms of like Asian culture that has maybe, you know, been passed down to me, I think I was raised in a much more collectivist environment. Um, mm -hmm. So in America, we do have a lot of individualism, right? Mm -hmm. Like, how do I look out for myself? Uh, what's the best thing for me? And you know, it's, it's both good and a terrible thing. And I think, uh, you know, when I, when I talk about collectivism, I, I don't mean politics, right? Or like Chinese politics. I mean more of just like, uh, you know, feeling like I belong to a different unit, that, that the unit is not the individual, but the mm -hmm. unit is say my family um, or, or, or my society, society not necessarily having a flag, right? Mm -hmm. but, but society as in like, I, I have a commitment to everybody else by, by being on this earth. Um, there's like a little bit of that, I'll say that. It's not, it's not so cut and dry, like China is more, is like collectivist and, and mm -hmm. the USA is, is purely individualist. I think things like capitalism support and uphold individualism and vice versa. And I think, you know, that's worth talking about, but also in China, like let's not pretend like China isn't capitalist in, in ways as well, that China doesn't have, you know, strains of individualism as well. It's not like so, so cut and dry, like one or the other. Um, I think that's something people miss when we talk about like Eastern philosophy versus Western philosophy, right? Mm -hmm. We live in a globalized world. There, there's exchange. Um, so I think that that's one thing. Like maybe I was just brought up to consider collectivism a little bit more than, than maybe some of my um, 
especially like white American peers. But I think another big thing to keep in mind is like we talk about tiger parents or about how like Asian students, like Asian American students, like, I don't know, score high on the SAT or whatever. Like there's that big affirmative action debate. Um, I'll suggest a book. It's called The Asian American Achievement Paradox by Jennifer Lee. She's also a sociology professor at Columbia. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the one of the notes that she makes in it is like a lot of Asian Americans are what she would call like hyper selected. So mm-hmm. Asian Asians who immigrated to the U.S. in recent decades have been hyper selected, meaning that you know we tried to bring like doctors, uh, lawyers, professionals um, to to America. So like a lot of times we say like oh like you know, why do like Asian Americans like study so hard to, to make good grades? You know, I think that's a very complex issue, but one thing I would like to keep in that discussion is how a lot of us are, are hyper-selected, right? Like, you know, if your parents are, are doctors, your parents are, are lawyers, your parents, right, do those things, your parents are academics, like, you know, that creates an environment uh, where when you're growing up, you're, you, you get the privilege of being exposed um, to a lot more of the things that you end up being tested on. Um, though I, I, I guess that's what I'll say. I mean, my own parents, I wouldn't call them tiger parents as it were. I think mm-hmm. despite them living their like most of their lives in China, mm-hmm. they have taken really good care of me and they've been really supportive about me studying liberal arts, studying sociology, African-American studies. Um, it's, a, it's a complex portrait uh, and we need to, we need to respect that. Oh, and, the, and unlike some parents, they didn't like force you to study economics or finance and find a job on Silicon Valley or Wall Street afterwards. Because I know some parents have really want to mold their child's, uh, their child's career path in certain ways. And you have to study certain subjects, you have to study uh, economics or finance or computer science, and you have to find a job at Wall Street. And they are not like those Chinese parents. Right. Because I, I don't I, I wouldn't say that those Chinese parents are like necessarily like in the wrong or, or lesser either. I mean, for example, like one of my friends, like I think her parents have that pressure for her to do one of those professional jobs too. And I said, why? I said, is, is it because your parents are just pushing you or deciding what they want? And she said, no, it's like our parents, my, my parents are, are worried for me. They're worried about what it means to be you know, Asian or, or a person of color in the United States, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so in her case, she's like, yeah, my parents think if I do this career, like, it'll be about my abilities, right? Mm-hmm. People won't say like, oh, you're Asian, like, you, like, you're probably not suited for, for a managerial position. You're probably not suited for a leadership position. Her parents are thinking, okay, like, you know, if it's about your ability, then you develop your ability and no one will be ever will ever be able to say to you, you don't have this ability based on some sort of like extrinsic criteria. Um, mm-hmm. that, that's not your ability like in that skill. So I think it's, I think it's, it's complicated. Uh, I definitely need to think about it more myself, but you know, I, I wouldn't say that, that my parents you know, necessarily did, did much better or, or worse than, than other parents who are making their own calculus. Uh, All right. And thank you so much for um, this interview today. I want to, Say congratulations to you and your parents for, uh, for your, because I know that this will be, you have a graduation ceremony soon. 
Yeah, you know, I want to congratulate you for successfully graduating and for spending four years successfully at Columbia. And I want to congratulate your parents too. <laughs> and um, I know I know that you you've mentioned a lot of people, and I, and I know that you also have a lot of friends. And a lot of them are undergraduate students at Columbia. And um, I want to, if I want to find more people to interview and feature them, also feature them on the on the Facebook page. I'm wondering if you can uh, help me connect to them, yeah, so absolutely. that I can find more people to interview. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I yeah, and I'm um, I'm I'm also in a very unique position because uh, I'm I'm studying in the U.S. but I'm from China. So uh, in addition to featuring featuring you on uh, on the Facebook page, I can also introduce you to people in China on what yeah. by say by um, by and by posting something about on the, on the Chinese media. So I guess I'm in a very unique position. And maybe some maybe some people in China will be very happy to ask you some questions. So we will see. Yeah, we'll see. I guess. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Sure. No problem. Yeah. Okay. And um, I will stop uh, recording. <laughs> How do 